without further ado, I am going to call up the wonderful Daniel Heck. He's going to be giving us a kid's sermon this morning. Welcome, Daniel. Thanks so much, Adrian. And God, thank you so much for your presence here with us and between us and among us, uh, even while we're apart. So, um, who here, and I wish I could still be talking to you. Normally, I would be talking to all of the kids out in the parking lot and I'd get to actually hear you scream, but I still like the idea of you guys responding and saying these things out loud uh, in your houses there. All around the city, there will be kids saying these things in their houses, which I think is beautiful. So, who here can tell me what season it is out of the four weather-based seasons? Go ahead and shout or say your answer out loud. I hope some of you said spring. I assume a lot of you did. And we're also celebrating the most joyful and important season of the year for churches all around the world. And I know a lot of you guys know it. Can you shout out for me what season it is on the church calendar? I'm imagining listening. And I know that all around the city there are kids saying Easter because you know that it's still the Easter season. And during Easter, we really give thanks for the life of Jesus and for the way he overcame death for us. There are so many things that God did and that God shows us in the resurrection of Jesus. And today we're going to focus on this message. The resurrection happened because God's kindness helps us change for the better. And the verse I'm going to read comes from one of the Apostle Paul's most famous letters. And he was called an apostle because he founded a bunch of churches. And this is, his letters to, this is from his letter to the Romans. And Paul really understood how God's kindness is meant to lead us into loving and encouraging each other and focusing on learning and growing ourselves instead of judging others and focus on what they do wrong. That can distract us and it can keep us from growing and learning ourselves. And there's a word in this passage that might be new to some of you and that word is repentance. Can you guys say repentance? Cool. And if you know what it means, that's awesome. And if you don't know what it means, that's awesome too because you get a chance to learn. Repentance means changing for the better by turning away from something that's bad, like hurting people, and turning towards something good, like loving God and loving people. Repentance is what someone does when they repent. All right, so here's the passage. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another person, you're condemning yourself because you, pass, you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, just a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment, which is the right judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, forbearance is like being really patient, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. So by giving his life for others, this is back to me talking, not the Bible, and defeating death through his resurrection, Jesus showed God's kindness and the power of God's kindness. This kindness helps us in so many amazing ways. And one of those ways is that it can inspire us to change, knowing that we can trust God to love us no matter what, and encourage us to keep learning and growing by fixing our mistakes. So now we're going to do our imaginative prayer, which is going to help this message sink deep into our hearts. I'm going to say a little prayer, and then we'll go into it. 
come Holy Spirit, God, thank you so much for the gift of imagination. Please bless our imagination as we use it to let the message of the Bible sink into our hearts. Imagine you and some friends are taking a walk in the woods when you find a gigantic, beautiful museum. The sign above the door says, the museum of everything. Everyone is welcome. And then in giant capital letters, it says, do not break anything. The door is wide open and you and your friends run into the museum together. Right at the entrance, there's a map that shows you all of the different parts of the museum. There's a kind old man with a big smile welcoming you in. He says he runs the place and he's so happy you found it. With a gentle voice, he points at the different parts of the map and explains what you can find there. There's an ancient artifacts part filled with objects from Egypt and China and Japan and Rome and Greece and more, including rides that let you explore the whole ancient world. There's a zoo section where you can pet and ride every kind of animal you can imagine. There are even tamed and rideable sharks. There's a dinosaur section that has live dinosaurs that you can play with too, and that's just for starters. There's a section for computers and games from the past and the future, and another section where you can play any sport from any time in history. There's a huge art section where you can see any painting or sculpture or picture, and there are amazing art supplies of every kind where you can make things based on what the art inspires. There's even a section where you can imagine your own section and the museum will build it for you. The old man says, you can touch the map anywhere and you'll be transported there right away. So, what part of the museum do you go to? Imagine, which part would you do? What would you do there? What would you see? What would be the most fun thing you would do in the museum of everything? After spending hours there, you and your friends are really hungry. You meet up outside the cafeteria, which is called, and this fits, the cafeteria of everything. There are giant refrigerators that go as high as you can see with ladders reaching up to them. There's a cafe line where you can order anything. And because this is the museum of everything, there are giant, priceless statues to look at all around you. You're waiting in line next to the coolest, most fun statue you can imagine. What does it look like? You can say it out loud too to your family or your parents around you. What's the most amazing statue you could imagine? What would it be made of? Now imagine that you're admiring the statue when a kid who is just a little bit older than you walks up and tries to push past you in line. Out of my way, they say. How does that make you feel? Then this kid shoves you over and you try to stand up, but you end up bumping them back. And that kid loses their balance and falls backward into one of the priceless statues, the most amazing statue you've ever seen. It crashes to the ground. And it was apparently even more fragile than you imagined because it shatters into a million pieces. There is no way to fix it now. And then you remember the sign at the front of the museum. Everyone welcome, do not break anything. Then the kid who tried pushing you stands up and starts pointing at you angrily. It's all your fault, they say. You broke that statue. You shoved me over. What are you going to do? Take some time to think about and imagine the situation. But while you're thinking, the old man who welcomed you into the museum walks up. 
he looks at the broken statue and you can tell that he's sad that it broke. But he looks at you with those same kind and gentle eyes and in a peaceful voice he asks, what happened here? Encouraged by his voice, both you and the other kid honestly explain what happened. He nods, looks at you, and says, thanks for telling me. Please don't break anything else. Oh, and I hope you enjoy your meals. What are you guys going to eat? How do you feel now? So guys, even for me, I actually get just a little teary thinking about this because this is the way the kindness of God gently leads us into repentance so that we can continue to learn and grow and be honest with ourselves and honest with each other. And that's one of, just, just one of the awesome things Jesus does and helps us do in his resurrection. I love you guys so much. I'm staring at a wall, imagining I'm seeing your amazing, happy little faces. But I hope to see you all soon. All right. Let's make sure. Uh, am, am I on? Let's see, getting all set up here. I've got to have some kind of semblance of living room to do church. I'll tell you, it's been very interesting to uh, meet outside and you know, being fully vaccinated and with some fully vaccinated people still wearing masks because then I can make faces at people and they don't notice. Um, but I'm starting to hug again. And Adrian will tell you, hugs are my jam. I mean, hugs are one of the most important things in the world. And that's why I love having a puppy, because if there's no one around, I just hug my puppy and uh, all that. But uh, it's so weird to wake up this morning. Uh, if you know my wife, she does not like operating heaters in the house. I woke up under our layers and layers of wool blankets, and uh, I felt like such a baby today. I knew we were coming here. It was cold. I was wrapped up in a blanket like a, a Jawa or Ben Kenobi. And I was just thinking what a massive contradictions I am. I, uh, I've been reading a bunch of books on polar exploration, the Franklin Expedition, the Shackleton Expedition, and I've been talking to Adrian about all these facts about polar exploration, and she's been very patient with me. And then I imagine myself as one of these people living on the edge of harsh weather and everything. I've been reading a lot about uh, settlers and homesteaders in Alaska. Then I wake up on a morning like this and wonder, why won't my wife turn on the heat? I'm just like, the spirit is willing as the flesh is weak. But uh, anyway, well, I, I married a very uh, durable woman. And it is Mother's Day. And I want to say just a couple things about Mother's Day is... Uh, Happy Mother's Day, first of all. Uh, two, uh, I think parents in general have had one of the hardest years of parenting, the hardest 12 months of parenting that people have had in ages. And uh, uh, mothers and fathers, but we're celebrating Mother's Day. We'll get to fathers in a little while. But uh, I've, the amount of mothers I've heard being ultra-critical of themselves because all the things they think they should be doing for their kids during the COVID time and quarantine. I just will say, mothers, you rocked it. This is a unique time in history, and you're, if you're, your kid's eight, 
and got routine hugs, you did a great job. And uh, I know, but a, a number of parents have told me, I've really loved all this extra time with my kids, where I'm not bussing them around to 100 things, but we've spent time together. So I just, uh, one of my, what I love is Jesus, when describing himself, had to actually uh, uh, use a mother metaphor to describe his desire for nurture. He talks himself as a mother hen wanting to take her chicks under her wings. And I just think that is, that is awesome. That is such a display of strength for Jesus to break with the cultural norms, to describe his love as a mother's, a powerful mother's love. And I love that, that uh, for, for all people, there's an archetype of motherhood that I believe uh, God created that is deeply inspiring. So happy Mother's Day, happy Mother's Day. And uh, yeah, so I wanted to uh, just share a couple things with you. You know, we've been kind of having a coda to our a Revitalized series for Lent, and we're going to be having a real exciting uh, book series coming up. I'm not going to tell you what book yet, but it's going to be How to Be Faithful in Babylon. And a little preview to this, uh, one way to read the scripture when it describes Babylon or a sinful nation, the appropriate way to read scripture is compared to the kingdom of heaven, every nation is a sinful nation, so wherever you live is Babylon and you're a part of it. So that's, we're going to talk about how we can be faithful in our own personal Babylon here of the United States of America. Um, so, does anyone watch Antiques Roadshow? I keep looking here because my wife and my buddies are, why don't you guys move your seats over here so I can actually have a conversation? But Adrian and I love watching Antiques Roadshow. We always guess what the value of things are, and I have my areas of antiquing expertise, and uh, Adrian's got her areas. And uh, I love it when people bring this masterpiece into Antiques Roadshow that they've just been using, like, oh, I've kept it out in the shed, and I've been using it, my kids draw pictures on it, you find, oh, well, that's a priceless such and such. But I actually have my own Antiques Roadshow regarding my stepmother, uh, Susan. Uh, Susan uh, it was, is, uh, like me, an expert garage sailor, and she was a garage sale many years ago in Grandview, and found a painting for 10 whole dollars, painted on a piece of plywood, of a man, and uh, it was $10, but uh, she was short on cash, and she talked the person back down to $5, and then bungee corded this big painting on a big piece of wood to her car and brought it to her house, and she called it her man. It was this painting of a man, and she used to dress it up seasonally. Like for Christmas, she would put cotton balls on the face for a beard and a little Santa hat, and then uh, one day, uh, she was at the Columbus Museum of Art, and she saw a woman who looked just like her man, like her sister, hanging up, and it was a painter by the name of Louis Cutchin. And she's like, that looks just like my painting. So she got one of the curators of the exhibit and says, you might have a Cutchin. Most of his paintings were lost after he died, died in 1936. Can I come over to your place and look at this painting? And she went home, and I don't know exactly how it worked out. Maybe she took the beard off and stuff. And he comes to her house and goes, that is one of the best Louis Cutchins I've ever seen. It's been lost. And she goes, oh, I've just been. And the guy was horrified. You've been, like, dressing it up seasonally like it's one of these concrete geese that people have. And they took it, and they restored it. and became the centerpiece of a Louis Cutchin retrospective. In fact, I just Googled Louis Cutchin. The first painting that came up 
was uh, Susan's painting. And I was thinking about this guy. So uh, my stepmother had this treasure, and it was an, it's an amazing painter. And she didn't know what she had. And this person came and was so excited to see this treasure, treasure but the same was saying, we need to treat this treasure as a treasure, and had this strong exhortation to how to care for this treasure. I want to keep this picture in mind because one of the ways God describes his creation is his art. And in, uh, Paul describes humankind as the apex of God's creation, and he uses the word poema, which means like God's magnum opus. And uh, I want to think about this, that there's a lot of theologians that really talk about how in humans, humans are totally sinful, totally depraved, totally broken, but keep in mind that Paul, this is after sin entered the world, refers to sinful, broken humanity as God's masterpiece. So I don't agree with the terminology some theologians, Western theologians have used of total depravity. I like the term fractured beauty or artwork awaiting restoration. And this idea, one reason of calling humans depraved or totally depraved is we want to emphasize how holy and good God is by talking how bad people are. But actually, I think we actually dishonor God when we talk to him about this way because the idea that God's artwork is so brittle and fragile that one mistake on behalf of humankind erases every aspect of God I mean, when we build something, it's hard to break it. When humans break something, it's hard. You know how, like, imagine a hard drive that we put all our documents on, and someone's trying to avoid criminal prosecution for self-dealing in a political office, per se. Even if you delete all your files and stuff, forensic specialists can recreate those files. I mean, you actually need to get a sledgehammer and destroy a drive to get rid of all its data. But we think humans are so delicate that one initial sin can destroy any vestige of God's workmanship. To me, that is an insult to God. And I know these theologians mean well, and it seems to work out in their algebraic equation to understanding the infinite holy God of the universe, but I would argue that God probably, God's more of a story God than uh, a God who is caged by equation, theological equations. Well, anyway, so this idea, humans are God's created masterpiece. Now, I'm, I'm not this Pollyanna that thinks every time I see a person, I see nothing but, you know, rainbows and unicorns and beauty. Humans are capable of being artistic masterpieces that put themselves in contexts of degradation. And many people I know in their journey of faith have come to this point where uh, maybe as an early or young Christian, you were always pointing fingers at people, or you're always telling people, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to be holy, you've got to change, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong. And we derive from the scriptures a code of what it is to live a holy life, and those become roles. And what it often seems like is people have used the idea of holiness to denigrate people. And I think the important thing is we, instead of having an equation of holiness, we have, a, have to have a story of being cherished. And many of the things that people can hammer people with is you're a sinner because you do X, Y, and Z. Actually, many of those things 
practices people engage in are harmful. They are destructive to the artwork they are. But there's a difference between shaming someone to try to change them to make them a better person versus highlighting to someone how precious they are and exhorting them to you are damaging yourself and you, you are meant for better things. And I would say that to have an encounter of God the Father, a true encounter of God is this loving parent would change the manner in which we talk to people about sin and degradation. And when we exhort people, we're not exhorting people as somehow they're lesser than us, but we're exhorting people as if you are this lost masterpiece that was stuck in some garage for a garage sale, but you don't know you're a priceless masterpiece. And I would say uh, a lot of us have become gun-shy to speaking truth to one another because at one point in our life we were judgmental or one point in our life we were self-righteous and then we've embraced instead of the rule of condemnation we've embraced a rule of passivity and I would say both rules are based on a legalistic set of equations of how we are not going to do wrong or do harm but I would say there's a third middle way and that is to see humankind as the Lord Jesus Christ sees them. See them as precious masterpieces. So I want to read two stories where Jesus delivered a hard word amidst a demonstration of extravagant grace. And I want us to imagine the tone of voices. I obviously talk a lot about this over and over, and I hope to talk about this till the day I draw my last breath. And that is we need to presume the most compassionate, loving, uh, extravagantly gracious, gracious tone of voice from Jesus whenever we read him, even when he delivers a hard word. So I want to read two passages, both from the Gospel of John. Before I read that, though, I, I, I didn't do this. I, I honored moms, but I didn't say a mom blessing. So let's do a mom blessing. Uh, mothers who are out there and motherly types, and you may be someone who has relationships where you act very maternal, even though you don't have children of your own, I want to pray a blessing on you. Say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine upon you. May the Lord take every gift of maternal courage, maternal power, maternal resilience, maternal grit, maternal creativity, and may he continue to grow that and fortify that and use that to protect his precious creation. You mothers out there, may you be the Holy Spirit-empowered she-bears that protect the vulnerable cubs in our world, the powerful mothers that you never get between a powerful mother and a vulnerable child I pray an unleashing of that maternal might and power as uh, another way to demonstrate the hands and feet and heart of God in a world where the vulnerable suffering. I pray that maternal force that the Holy Spirit gives you could also be a maternal force that pro protects immigrants, the aliens, the strangers, the fatherless and the widow 
that this supernova of maternal love that God created as part of the way humankind bears his image would be fanned into a supernova in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. So I'm going to read John 5, 1 through 15, and then we're going to read John 8, 2 through 11. And interestingly enough, in the last year, we've touched on both these passages, but we're going to juxtapose them together and talk about both of them. Um, so sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. The Jews had a lot of festivals. It was the people of the party. Now, there was in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here's a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool. When the water is stirred, while I'm trying to get into it, someone else goes down to the water. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. I just want to pause there. Every time Jesus heals someone, there's like a totally different manner in which he does it. It's not a formula. And Jesus almost right now is like, he ignores the guy's excuses. He said, okay, get up already. And the power of God flowed through this almost like uh, offhand remark. This is the offhand healing. Now, sometimes Jesus had these totally dramatic healings, but this was one of his offhand healings. And the day in which this took place was a Sabbath. And the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. <laughs> Further adventures and missing the point. Uh, but he replied, the man who made me well said to pick up your mat and walk. So once again, the guy says, I can't go into this pool because no one left me. He goes, don't blame me. Blame that guy that healed me. It's his fault. And so they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat? <laughs> and the man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away in the crowd that was there. So Jesus, this is one of those, I'm going to heal someone and ghost on them, right? I mean, Jesus just is always keeping you on our toes. Later, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well again. Now here comes the, stop sinning. Something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. This is such a funny story. So many levels. I don't know who healed me. He disappeared. And Jesus is like, you're healed. See, you're healed. Stop sinning or something worse might happen. And the guy goes off and goes, hey, yeah, okay, it was Jesus who healed me. I don't know what was going on with this guy, but this, this guy did not seem like the most uh, grateful healed person story I ever had that was rejoicing. Like I think at the woman at the well, the woman at the well who totally had Jesus read her mail, couldn't stop talking about Jesus. But this guy is like telling the people who may want to put Jesus to death, yeah, it was him, that's officer, it was that person who healed me from a life of misery. So this is kind of funny, but what's interesting is the woman at the well, when Jesus talked to her, uh, he actually delineated her life of drama and brokenness and broken down relationships. This guy, he doesn't even mention a specific sin, but he just says, hey, watch yourself. Don't keep doing this stuff you've been up to 
something worse might happen. So we're led to infer that perhaps this guy's condition either was initiated or extended by a lifestyle this guy was embracing that was harmful. So perhaps this guy uh, was engaging in an activity that did not honor the preciousness of his human body, and due to that activity, his human body was paralyzed. It could have been, you know, he could have injured it. It could be some form of STD. We don't know. Jesus does not even get specific. But if you're like me and you read this story, you may have sometimes read it, stop sinning or something worse might happen to you because we read Jesus through the voice of shame. But I don't see Jesus as the voice of shame breaking ceremonial law healing this guy, seeking him in a gout again to find him, which puts him in the crosshairs of the Pharisees. The Jesus, if you read the whole gospel, we don't have a picture of a Jesus who uses the nagging shame voice. We have a picture of Jesus his saying, Jesus who puts his life on the line for the vulnerable, saying, don't hurt yourself. So I would say is, I don't know how many times where uh, I've heard or I myself have spoken out against reckless sexual expression, you know, the party lifestyle. And you've heard a lot of preachers talk about, uh, you know, the, the lifestyles people are living, these lives of dispensation, casual sex, sleeping around. But it's spoken of in such a way that you're doing these things, that they, they mar you and you're but dirt before a holy God. When the reality is God sees your sexuality, even your nakedness, your body is a thing to be cherished, to be covered, to be nurtured, to be healed, to be restored. And he doesn't want to see your body objectified. It's a totally different phrase from judging someone who you see is uh, using their sexuality as a form of, as an assertion of power or an assertion of worth. I uh, recently listened to a YouTube video with Russell Brand talking about, uh, I believe, that Cardi B song uh, that she did with someone else. Uh, the song, uh, I believe, was uh, Three Initials was the name of the song. And a lot of people have been talking about how pathetic the women who performed this song were and how uh, pornographic the video was. And I wouldn't argue that the video wasn't pornographic, haven't seen it, can't really give you my take on it. But what uh, Russell Brand said about this was more Christ-like than what I've heard a lot of Christians say about this. And, you know, obviously Russell Brand's someone who can't get away from Jesus. You just hear him and he keeps getting more enthralled with the person of Jesus. But he says, you know, this idea that men have treated women have, in the patriarchy as objects of their pleasure, objects to consume, objects to utilize to bring them euphoria. In a way, in a sinful, broken way, one way that male power has been demonstrated is to objectify the work of art that is humans, or the work of art of a, a female's body as a thing to use, a tool 
to use. And if that tool doesn't work, a tool to be discarded. And he said, I think we, we should question, I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing Mr. Brand here, I think we should question that it is empowering to embrace an oppressor's definition of who you are and try to utilize their definition of you as an object, as an object of power. Um, so, uh, and I would summarize it, you know, <laughs> to, to identify yourself the same way a drunken frat boy would identify yourself as not empowerment. So, when I would see Jesus speaking truth to someone, he's not calling you or he's not S-shaming you. I'm not going to use a word because I know there's some children here. But Jesus is calling you to embrace your innate preciousness in him. And I love this. Uh, I want to talk about Jesus and the woman caught in the act of adultery. Actually, I want to summarize this because I know we're dealing with time. And it's John 8, one of my favorite stories in the whole world. The Pharisees come to Jesus with this woman who's been caught in the act of adultery, which is a problematic ideal. How do you catch someone in the act of adultery unless you're a voyeurist of some sort? So the, the, these, were, these Pharisees were a group of creepers, which if you've watched a lot of the church scandals, a lot of the most fundamentalist, legalistic Christians seem to be continually busted as being creepers. Have you noticed that? You know, the people who point the fingers of others and the people that shame others, it seems like shaming people and being a creeper go hand in hand. Because both when you shame people and when you creep on them, you're treating people like objects. Huh. So anyway, uh, that's just an idea. Do what you want to with that. But Jesus, this woman has brought to, she was caught in a compromising position. Notice the man was not brought before them. You can tell it's a guy's club here, right? Let's hold the woman accountable, but let's let the guy off. And they are armed with rocks. Now, I want you to think this. Like, we don't think about how violent, inherently violent, this situation was. You know, if someone is aiming a, a, a gun at you, I mean, you have got to be a marksman to hit someone with a gun, to hit center body mass. But if you have a, a, a huge group of people with stones, there's no amount of ninja technique or evasive technique that isn't going to prevent you from being crushed into a pulp in the most painful way possible. So I would say stoning is more dangerous than a gun or a knife. There are evasive techniques. There's no evasive technique for a circular crowd of rocks. Not to mention is stoning does not kill you right away. A headshot can turn you off right then, but stoning is like the mo is a way to destroy a human body. So in a way, this method of execution is the ultimate desecration and objectifying of a human. Violence towards humans, is, the moment you're violent is the moment you deny someone's treasured and cherished status before God. So they've objectified this woman as a mere rhetorical ploy to catch Jesus in a, a situation. They are imminently threatening the destruction and brutalization of her body. And I just imagine as Jesus loves his treasure, and his treasure is humankind, that he stands between the woman and the stones, and he rhetorically, nonviolently, disarms an entire crowd 
First, he does something weird. I mean, he, Jesus disrupts the amygdalic, riotous crowd by, he just starts doodling in the ground. I don't know what he's drawing, but it's weird. One way disru- to disrupt anger and rage is to weird people out. Uh, David actually did this with Saul. When Saul's guys were getting ready to kill him, David started foaming at the mouth and acting crazy. I mean, you know, one way to disrupt the cycle of violence is weird people out. That, I don't know, that appeals to my heart. Jesus weirds them out by drawing in the dirt. Then he gets up and does another one of those umpteen billion Jesus mic drop moments. Jesus said, okay, um, you without sin cast the first stone. And I can see Jesus' knowing glance. You know someone that can look at you and you know they see through you? I can see Jesus making eye contact with each person. Now, the older people drop the stones first because, you know, if you're like me, I'm 49 years old, which is a polite way of saying 50. If you're 20, I've got a lot more, I've had more opportunity to sin and screw things up than you have. The older guys, the older you get, unless you're some narcissistic sociopath, the more you're aware of your legion of screw-ups. So the young guys are the last to go, and then the woman is there. Jesus has just saved her life. He's saved her from being bludgeoned into a mushy corpse is not recognizably human. I know that's graphic. My wife's just shaking her head like, really, Jeff? And Jesus turns to her and says this. He says, woman, where, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And uh, she says, no one, sir, she said. Now, I want you to picture this. Jesus standing shoulder to shoulder this woman this mic dropping rabbi who heals the sick, and this woman who's just been called in the middle of having relations with a guy. Don't even know if she's dressed or not. And he's standing to her just saying, hey, where are those guys? Like, a peer. Like, where'd they go? Like, he's, he's holding a conversation like you would have with an equal. But then he says, she goes, well, yeah, there's no one here to condemn me. And he goes, well, I'm not going to condemn you. But then he says this, go, leave your life of sin. If you're like me, you've heard this, go, and leave, especially if you read like James Earl Jones reading the King James Bible. I mean, first of all, I do not recommend getting Darth Vader and the star of countless black exploitation films reading the Bible. It's not a good voice to equate. So whether, you know, you see any of James Earl Jones' movie, that doesn't work for the Bible. I don't want to hear Darth go and sin no more. No. Jesus had just saved life. He said, okay, you're free to go. And I, I touched on this a couple weeks ago when we, on Easter, but he's saying, you've got life 2.0 here, lady. You're a treasure. Live as the treasure you are. So my friends, I have overcorrected my life where I often don't say, uh, hey, don't keep doing this or something worse might happen. Or I don't say, go and leave this life of sin. But I realize if I value the physical bodies who are, physical human bodies of people who are precious, if I believe the treasured stat, the same, the same passion that animates me to say black lives matter, not because other lives don't matter, But when I say black lives matter because we have systems that don't value black bodies the way they value my body, the same 
idea narrative of us being the precious creation of God would also mean that I, in the loving tone of Jesus, the tone that says, I would lay down my life for you, would speak to my friend and say, listen, the way you're drinking right now is going to ruin your life. Stop this or something really bad might happen to you. Or when you're going to bail someone out of a hole they've dug themselves in, to have an intervention with them to speak truth. But the thing is, until we can see God as viewing us as the treasure, and until we can marinate and soak in the story of Jesus till we see people's treasure, almost as a mantra is to always think, who's the most important person in the universe? It's the person you happen to be talking to at any given moment. Let's embrace the treasured status of whoever we talk to and let the Holy Spirit empower us to speak the hard truth if someone is self-harming because they're so precious. Uh, And that, it's not purity codes that motivate us to speak people to value themselves and value their bodies. It's the unknown masterpiece that each person is. And one way Jesus demonstrated that is the sanctity of human bodies in the sanctity of human life is he took the Passover where the people of God, Israel, had their bodies preserved from harm and death. Their bodies were preserved and Jesus took this uh, memorial of the preciousness of the Jewish people in the Jewish bodies and said this is for all people. This memorial of the preciousness of human life applies to the whole world. And I'm going to talk about the preciousness of your body and my value of your precious body by talking about my precious body being injured, where I took the brunt of evil in the world. This is Jesus. Jesus took the brunt of evil into his body being desecrated his body body being bludgeoned, his body being crucified and demolished, and said, my body has taken on the forces that demolish human life, and I'm coming back. And so every time you eat broken bread, which we have the bread in here in this little plastic cup. Let's see if I can open it. He says, this broken bread is my body that's broken for your precious, priceless body. This cup is my spilt blood that was spilt so your precious blood could be saved. And when we take these elements, and when we eat them, everything you eat, you are what you eat, right? When we pledge allegiance to the nonviolent Jesus who conquers the violence and evil of this world, When we eat this, we're essentially saying, my body, my existence is made up in your nonviolent, sacrificial love that acknowledges the treasure status of creation in the redemption arc you are trying to work with all humankind. So let's take this. Lord, give us your presence. So dear friends, today, creation is precious, you're precious, I want to pray a prayer of surrender in one way, whether you're currently a follower of God or you're moving towards following God or wherever you're at in any state, that the worship folks say, wherever you're at, I want to invite you 
to change your view of your life. I want to invite you to repent, as Daniel's talking. Repentance means to turn away from one way to another, to change your operating system, and to change your operating system to one of either shame, shaming others, or being ashamed of yourself, one of hurting others, or one of self-harm, to one of humans are treasured by a good God. And one of the key elements of repentance is seeing yourself as Jesus in embracing his love and basically inviting Jesus in to do this art restoration in your life, which will involve you doing certain things and you ceasing from other things that harm you. That's what repentance is. So I want to pray a prayer of initial surrender. This isn't a magic prayer that says, pray this, and then you go to heaven in the sweet mind by, and that's all you need to do is believe these four things. This is a prayer of journey initiation. This is a pledge of allegiance to a king that will keep working with you. Father God, I give you my life. All that my life is, all that my life isn't, I give you all my success, all my failure. I give you everything I did out of hate or everything that caused harm that I did out of good motivation and it just was a fail. I give you the whole tapestry of my story, Jesus, to work into the, your story. Lord Jesus, I receive your forgiveness for all my failures and sins and I receive your power to be a forgiver of others. I've been an enemy at various times in my life of your agenda to treat all as precious and priceless. I've been an enemy of that, and I repent to become an instrument of your grace. My life is yours, Jesus. You are my king. I receive your forgiveness. Dwell in my life. Give me your Holy Spirit. I want to be just like you, Jesus. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you prayed that, you have prayed a prayer of You've prayed a prayer that expresses to God, and anyone have heard it, that you are a follower of Jesus that wants to grow in following Jesus. And I just want to add, if you've done that, if that's something you've kind of re-upped on or done newly, please, please reach out to one of us or someone in our church. Talk about it. One of the ways we firm up our journey with Jesus is we process it with others. We talk about it. It becomes more real when you tell people. So God bless you. We're going to close in worship. And hopefully next week we'll have a weather and have souped up our tent where we can do that whole I'm vaccinated, here's a hug type thing that we love doing at Central Vineyard. God bless you. goodness of God allowing us to be Jesus to those around us. Just thank you, Lord, for that. So we're going to close with, um, give me Jesus. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Thank you, Lord. In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me 
Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. When I am alone. Bless you, Central Vineyard. May Jesus, may Jesus' love for you be what allows you to wake up in the morning, what sustains you through the day, through the week, and may Jesus and his love for you be what allows you to go to sleep in peace at night this week. In Jesus' name, you are loved. See you guys next week. Mwah.